Hello and welcome to another episode of Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy. My name is Melanie Favort. In this episode, we talk about the havoc our hormones can cause after a hysterectomy. But before we go on, please remember, as always, that this podcast is intended for information purposes only and must, of course, never replace medical intervention. So if you're worried about something, please contact your medical provider immediately. Now, when the ovaries are removed during a hysterectomy, many women find the subsequent hormonal changes very challenging and even bewildering. It's not always clear which of these symptoms are hormone related and what can be done. So to answer some of these questions, I've invited Dr. Erica Drewis, an integrative specialist family physician who I regard as a genius when it comes to rebalancing hormones, to talk to me. On Dr. Drewis's website, she says that she and the staff of her medical practice make it their mission to create an environment of acceptance, hope, and healing. I just love that because I believe that that is really what we all want from our doctors. So Erica, a big welcome to you today. Thanks, Milani. It's a real honor to be part of the conversation. So let's start at the very beginning. Let's do a 101 of hormones. What are they? What hormones do women have? And where are they made? So basically, in our bodies, we have a whole lot of chemistry going on, lots of molecules signaling and floating around and pressing different proverbial buttons. And hormones happen to be a class of those chemical signaling molecules. What makes hormones different from other molecules is that they are produced in organs, mostly that are glandular in function. So you have, for example, the thyroid hormone that's made in the thyroid gland. You've got adrenal hormones that are made in the adrenal gland. And then, of course, in females, the ovarian hormones and in the males, You've got testosterone from the testes, and then you also have larger organs like the pancreas that basically make insulin, which is very well known to control our blood sugars. Yeah, that would be the summary of it. And then basically all these organs are under control of master hormones that are actually made by the brain. So there's a whole um, hierarchy of hormones controlling tissue that make other hormones. And when we then talk specifically the hormones that get affected by hysterectomies or also menopause, are those mainly progesterone, estrogen, and also testosterone, or am I missing something? Yes, that is that is correct. It's it's mainly hormones that are made in the tissue that is then being taken out with the surgery. We've in previous episodes discussed the various types of hysterectomies that we can get. But then, of course, when it comes to hormones, there is a difference whether you get or the hysterectomy is done, and particularly the ovarectomy or the removal of the ovaries, whether you are still in premenopausal phase or whether you've gone through menopause. Let's just talk about premenopausal women. So if both ovaries are taken out, what happens? Premenopausal women, you still have quite a good production of most of the hormones. So there is a natural decline that starts with hormones actually already in your 30s. The hormones that usually start declining naturally just as part of natural aging is usually your progesterone and your testosterone. And usually when women get to the point where they start getting hot flushes, which happens around about the age of 50, that's actually when the estrogen itself starts dipping. But really perimenopausal changes start long before that already when the progesterone and the testosterone starts dropping. So in a person's 40s, there can be a huge amount of hormonal flux and you can end up with situations where the hormones aren't balanced and then you end up with various reasons, not just 
that this is the only reason, but you can end up with very heavy periods. So a lot of women end up with needing hysterectomies in their 40s already, even though they aren't menopausal and they don't have cancers or other lesions, just because of that, that it's a struggle to control this heavy bleeding. And in that situation, if a woman then ends up with a hysterectomy, depending on what they find and what they take out, if they take out both of the ovaries at the same time, you're going to have a massive, massive falling off a cliff almost, where you won't have any hormones really produced at the same levels as what it was before the surgery. And because the tissue that's used to uh, getting uh, access to these hormones suddenly don't have it, it would be almost like a metabolic catastrophe for the person if the ovaries are taken out at the same time. If the ovaries are left, on the other hand, then the hormonal change is is not as drastic because you still have access to the ovarian hormones. And if only one ovary is left, is there a dip or, or do the, does that one ovary um, make up for the other one? If there's one ovary left, according to sort of what's taught at most of the medical schools, that should be no problem. Most people should be able to continue not feeling such a, a dip. But um, of course, um, you have less access now. So the levels will probably be not as good as what they used to be before you've had the surgery. I know this is a slightly more controversial question and also that there's disagreement in the medical profession. But I was, for example, postmenopausal and most of the doctors said, well, you know, there should be no effect there. I experienced it very differently, though. I certainly had flushes again, not as severe as when I went through menopause, but certainly had some flushing, slept badly again. Is there also, or could there be also, in your view, an effect in postmenopausal women? I would say that that, like you said, is, is a very controversial area. I think not really controversial, more that I don't think we have good enough studies and good enough data to tell us more about that. But there is a very well-known phenomenon that we do see postmenopausal women who are able to still produce low levels of estrogen that maybe are not detectable when you test, but are there and that are somewhat protective against severe menopause. And when you go in and remove then the ovaries in the scenario, you could be taking out that last little bit that the ovaries are still producing and that could create a dip. But like I said, we don't really have good data around that. So, so you can get a dip uh, after they've removed the ovaries, even if you are postmenopausal, because there is this anecdotal awareness that the ovaries do still produce low levels of hormones, even postmenopausally, in some women, not in all. And we certainly just need more good data around that. Another mechanism that I think is very valid in a scenario like that, um, what you've just described, is that I often see my postmenopausal patients come to me with a worsening of their menopause symptoms when they're going through emotional stress or if they've gone through physical stress. So for example, I've seen it a lot in the last three years with people who have, for example, had COVID or had been hospitalized for COVID or maybe going through an emotional stress, like for example, maybe going through a divorce. I would have them stable on their hormone replacement and then they would go through the stress, all their menopausal symptoms would reappear. And that is because of the interplay between your stress hormones and your ovarian hormones. And um, we see that quite commonly. So yes, on the one hand, it could be because you've lost that residual or that last little bit of estrogen that the ovaries make, but it could certainly also be part of a stress response. Mm, that's super interesting. I wanted to ask you just before we go into all the symptoms, can you basically just give me an idea of what does estrogen do in your body? Just briefly, you know, is that mainly 
it does mainly what for you, whereas progesterone does what and what does testosterone do for you, just very basically? Basically, um, estrogen, over 300 different functions uh, that estrogen does for you in your body, but the ones that we focusing on the most in the postmenopausal patient is we want that extra bone protection. So estrogen is very well known to protect bones against osteoporosis. There's also a link with brain function. Uh, we often see that women who don't take any hormone replacement and who are going into menopause have what we call a bit of cognitive decline, which, you know, you can't remember uh, where you put your keys or you walk into a room. You can't remember what you came to do there. Become quite anxious. You can become quite tearful. Estrogen helps to balance uh, the mood quite a bit. Estrogen also is very important for the cardiovascular system. Uh, we know that women who don't have enough estrogen have a risk of uh, having their blood lipid profiles, their, their cholesterol levels and so on tend to go up. They also tend to get more vascular disease. So um, high blood pressure, a, a risk of heart attack suddenly becomes an issue where it wouldn't have been because estrogen would have protected you. And then I always say to patients, estrogen is also your juicy hormone. It, it keeps tissues well hydrated and, and lubricated. So often when people go into menopause, they start complaining of a dry eye, their joints become creaky and, and stiff. And so they struggle with body aches. And then also the, the dry vagina that comes with this dryness and then this tendency to having maybe recurrent urinary tract infections and maybe also a thrush. In basic is estrogen, uh, but there's obviously a lot more that it does for you. And then in terms of progesterone, estrogen and progesterone are very important to used together in hormone replacement therapy. I know that this is quite a controversy in terms of functional medicine, I think not so much in mainstream approaches. In mainstream approaches, they wouldn't necessarily recommend a progesterone for a woman who's had a hysterectomy because the way that it works, progesterone and estrogen oppose each other in the body. So if, if estrogen activates a certain receptor, progesterone will come and switch that receptor off. So they, they like two horses pulling a cart basically in the system. Progesterone also has really positive effects on the brain. So it has this calming effect on the brain, almost like the amino acid GABA, and it helps to promote a sense of calm. It takes that anxiety away. It helps to promote memory. So it's got a very, very positive effects on the brain and then also protects the bone to a degree. It can also protect you to a degree against hot flushes. So it's got its own sort of special place, but its main role in the uterus which is what I was referring to earlier, is that it will oppose the effects of estrogen in the uterus. So, so estrogen will come and it will thicken the lining of the inside of the womb and progesterone will come and it will oppose the estrogen and, and therefore you end up with a thin lining on the inside of the womb. And why that is important is that we know that women who have this thickened lining on the inside of the womb are at risk of developing abnormal cells, which sometimes, um, in some cases, can lead to a cancerous cells developing there and endometrial cancer. So it's a big no-no to give a woman hormones uh, if she has a uterus and only give her estrogen. You have to always give progesterone with it. But then when we look at the woman who has had the hysterectomy, most doctors will recommend only estrogen because they'll say the womb has now been removed and therefore you don't need the progesterone. But from a functional medicine point of view, 
that isn't holistic enough uh, because we still want that positive effect of the progesterone on the brain. We want the positive effects that it gives in the rest of the body, in the heart and vascular tissue and so on. And it's really, really important when you're looking at balancing a person who struggles with adrenal fatigue, um, the so-called hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysregulation, which is the heavy medical term for burnout. And uh, the reason why progesterone is so important there is because it's an upstream hormone to forming cortisol and cortisol is our stress hormone. As functional doctors, we'll always work with the progesterone, the natural bioidentical progesterone, even though a person has had a hysterectomy. There is, I think, disagreement there. There's also the whole issue of the difference between what's a natural progesterone and a synthetic progestin, uh, which is what is in most of the HRT that is used often in the mainstream. And then I think I need to leave that there because it becomes a bit more complicated after that. And I could maybe come back to that, Milani, if you want to. I just wanted to move on now to testosterone. So testosterone is also found in women's bodies. Women are always surprised when I start talking to them about testosterone, but we do actually need low levels of what we call physiological levels of testosterone in our bodies. Testosterone has also been shown to help us to function better. So it really improves quality of life. So better energy and better ability to cope through stressful times. But testosterone is also um, muscle strength. And there seems to be also when people have low testosterone, their libidos tend to be lower. And then they also sometimes have a cellulite forming and they sometimes struggle to build muscle. And in some books, they also talk about aging around the mouth, um, little vertical lines that start forming above the upper lip or sometimes associated with the loss of testosterone. I want to just go through quickly through a list of symptoms that you always see women debating on social media, et cetera, and asking, is this hormonal? Um, we can't go through all of them in detail, but maybe we can just discuss a little bit whether they are hormonal related. And if you want to give an indication of why, I'm going to group them perhaps. I mean, the, the first group, which is the obvious ones, the hot flushes, night sweats, insomnia, and then sometimes obviously what goes with the insomnia is exhaustion. They can all be hormone-related, right? Definitely, uh, 100%. It's always difficult to know exactly which hormone is causing what because they overlap. For example, a lack of progesterone and a lack of estrogen can give you insomnia. But classically, it's an estrogen lack that gives you the hot flushes and the sweats. And then on the emotional front, irritability, mood swings, anxiety? 100% also can be completely because of lack of estrogen and progesterone. I tend to find that progesterone has got a beautifully uh, stabilizing effect on the mood, more so than the estrogen, but both of them could certainly cause all of the above. Something we discussed, we, we previously have an episode on the sexual life of women after hysterectomies, and we know that there's a lot of the hormones playing in there, but things like vaginal thinning, you've spoken about the vaginal dryness, UTIs, lower sex drives, those are all very common as well, right? Yes, of course. Um, so for example, the low libido can be connected to not having enough testosterone. And then the vaginal mucosa, so this thin lining of cells on the inside of the vagina is very, very sensitive to estrogen. And sometimes just HRT on its own is not enough to 
restore the balance there. So how it works is we've got these really good bacteria that live in the vaginal area called the lactobacillus, and they need to be there in good enough numbers to protect us against urinary tract infections and yeast infections. They basically just crowd everything else out. But when you go into menopause and you lose your estrogen, the tissues become dehydrated and the food for this lactobacilli is actually derived from this hydrated tissue. And therefore, their numbers start dwindling and the vaginal pH, the acidity and alkaline balance shifts, which makes it also unpleasant for these bacteria. So they they basically, they dwindle in numbers. Then you have these problems happening uh, where the mucosal lining starts thinning and you can have these recurrent UTIs, you can have thrush infections. And some women even start struggling with a little bit of stress urinary incontinence, which basically means you can't really hold your urine in as well as you always could so you need to you know when you cough or, or when you laugh or pick up something heavy you you can leak a little bit and that's also because that whole area has now become a, a bit dehydrated so when you looking at a person and you're wanting to help balance their hormones yes you can use the systemic hormones and that should sort them out but there's a percentage of women who will need extra vaginal estrogen that is applied either with a small tablet or with a cream uh, that will help create the correct environment for those lactobacilli to come back and for that area to function better again. The one thing that I think women ask all the time is weight gain. Why do so many women gain weight after a hysterectomy? Well, that's also a complicated question. Some of it has got to do with the hormonal changes. One of the theories that I've heard is that the body, in order to create some estrogen, you can, there is a mechanism to create estrogen from fatty tissue, and we call that aromatization. So what we often see is, and we don't just see it after the hysterectomy, we sometimes see it also in just natural menopause that women start gaining weight. And there is this theory that the body wants to, restore the balance of this lack by stimulating appetite so that we can build more fat cells so that there's more aromatization that happens so that we have more estrogen. So that's sort of a theory. But then there is also other things that would feed into it. There would be the stress hormones. I think women must never leave out the stress hormones when you talk about women and hysterectomies and ovaries, it's really important to to bear stress in mind and stress resiliency in mind and the effects of cortisol. And if your cortisol, which is your stress hormone, also is dysregulated, like I said to you earlier, if people have gone through a hysterectomy, that's a body stress, then that will lead to dysregulation in your cortisol. And cortisol's job, or one of its effects is that it will raise your blood sugar. So it will have this knock-on effect with the raised blood sugar that the body will need to release more insulin to take care of the blood sugar, to take it out of circulation. And that higher insulin will also cause more fat deposition happening in the stomach area especially. You'll end up losing muscle and you'll end up creating more fat. So I think that there's this wicked interplay that happens. And then with it, the hormonal changes will bring neurotransmitter changes in the brain and you will maybe not as be as balanced and in control as you used to be with good hormonal levels. So you'll you'll maybe be a little bit more emotional, maybe you'll want to eat a little bit more, maybe there'll be more cravings, and that will also then pile on the issues. I think it's multifactorial, and then obviously I think we mustn't forget about the gut and the changes in the gut microbiome, which would probably also act into the same direction. 
We, you spoke earlier a little bit about the dreaded brain fog, which is such an unpleasant thing during menopause or, you know, whether it's hysterectomy induced or otherwise. But they're also sort of less common symptoms, although one can't just write them all off to hormonal changes, but things like heart palpitations as well and headaches, for example, right? The heart palpitations and the headaches, we call it um, vasovagal uh, control or vascular control that changes when you lose your estrogen. So fits into the constellation of the hot flushes and the sweats. It's just a, a instability basically of the nerves that control the vascular tissue. So let's talk a little bit about the options. You've already referred to HRT, which women are usually familiar with. Can you just take us through what's the difference between HRT the bioidentical hormones, which are, I think, usually creams, right? And then obviously vaginal creams are what it says on the packet, right? But perhaps yes. the difference between HRT and bioidentical hormones. Sure. I think I started talking about that earlier also when I started talking about progesterone, natural progesterone and progestin. So I'll, this will be a good moment for me to maybe explain that a little bit more as well. So I think uh, what people need to understand if you were to create a mind map is that bioidentical hormones are a form of hormone replacement therapy. The difference between a bioidentical hormone and the traditional hormone replacement therapy is that the traditional hormones tended to be synthetics, synthetic molecules that could be patented and, you know, would come in a packet. And the first generation of these synthetic hormones were mostly given in a pill form, so orally. And they worked pretty well. They tended to be quite heavy-handed in terms of their strength. And for some women, they worked really well. And for some women, they were really just too strong. And they were sort of brought onto the market at the end of the previous century. And this is where we started seeing some problems around cancers and suspicion around whether these products were maybe connected with cancers, especially the big controversy was around breast cancer. So um, I know you wanted to talk about that. So I could maybe just stop there and say that that there was a problem there and we could maybe come back to this later. Uh, I just want to go on to then say the bioidentical hormones, they are not necessarily plant hormones and made from nature. So I won't go so far as to say that they are natural. They are still made in a laboratory, but the molecule is very different from the synthetic in that it looks exactly like the molecule that your body makes. And therefore we use the term bioidentical. And yes, there's been this trend to instead of giving the oral medication, we would prefer to give the estrogen especially via the skin. So we call that transdermal application because we are able to more safely deliver the medication to a person than through uh, the mouth. And the reason for that is that the liver doesn't have to metabolize the product so much. And that takes a lot of a load off your system. So everything just goes into the blood and then it gets filtered out and excreted by the kidneys. So after it's done its job, it leaves the body. So normally they come in the form of creams and you get uh, different strengths and different products. People think that if something is bioidentical, you have to see a functional doctor for that and it has to be prescribed via a compounding pharmacy. And that is how many of us prescribe. But there are actually very nice bioidentical products on the market that are FDA approved that you can get prescribed from your gynecologist. Um, some of them come in gels. Some of them are um, in patches that you can stick on your skin. That's usually the estrogen. And then the progesterone, there is a big difference. So the bioidentical progesterone is 
something that we can get compounded. And there is also a capsule that is available. I know that it's available worldwide in a 100 milligram or a 200 milligram that you can get. Um, It's oral micronized progesterone. And you would use that with your estrogen product. There are also products that contain a synthetic progestin, which binds at the same place where your oral micronized progesterone would bind. But it's synthetic, it's a massive molecule, and it binds in a very specific way. And that has been associated with quite a lot of side effects. So these progestins are the ones that have been mostly associated with maybe a link with breast cancer. And they also have side effects. They can give you acne, they can give you depression, and they basically tend to not have the positive brain effects that the bioidentical progesterones tend to have. So I would definitely make a distinction there. And uh, this is, I think, where the controversy also comes because the natural progesterone is something that I think every woman needs from a whole body point of view, not just from a uterus point of view. Although the progesterone is something that is more used in the mainstream, the progestin, the synthetic progestin. And then I just wanted to talk to you about testosterone, if I may. There is at the moment no FDA-approved testosterone on the market for women, but the compounding pharmacies are filling that gap. And I think that something that we need to know is that testosterone replacement for women in the postmenopausal and post-hysterectomy period is sometimes seen as a controversy. But I have actually just uh, recently looked at some more publications around this topic, and they do recommend that if a person has had a hysterectomy, that you actually do take replacement for all three if it's not contraindicated, for example, if you're not getting your hysterectomy because of a cancer or something. What is clear to me is that when we're talking about these hormones, it's it's something that is quite complex to balance, to get right. It's not something that women can just do themselves by buying things over the internet or speaking to other women and taking off some of their pills, right? If, yes. if a woman comes to you, what would you do? Is there a series of blood tests or how would you address this? Normally what we do is I would take a a full history, uh, get a sense of the person, get a sense of the whole picture. I want to obviously know a lot more about the person than just their hormones. And then I would send them for blood tests. And when they come back, we will have a whole conversation about what would work for that person. And if that person wants to access bioidenticals, then I can make that happen for her. But there are also women who who really, they want help with their flushes, but they don't necessarily want hormones. And in that case, there are some lovely herbal products on the market that a person can try to manage the hot flushes and so on. Although we don't have a lot of studies on them and we don't necessarily know that they they will, for example, give the heart protection and the bone protection, etc. that we know that the hormone replacement does. So those would also be the kind of things you would use with women who, for example, cannot take hormones because of cancers, et cetera, are contraindicated but need help, right? Yes. Again, it's complicated because even the herbs can sometimes create hormonal interactions and we don't really want to give a person who, for example, had a hormone-sensitive breast cancer anything that could stimulate that receptor. But then we do have workarounds. So, for example... You can look at prescription medicine, like, for example, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, have been shown to sometimes help with hot flushes. It's not necessarily natural, but, you know, if you don't have a lot of choices, it's something you could try. There is also 
just managing it in a non medication way uh, you could for example a lot of women tend to do breathing exercises practicing of yoga can often help with lowering the heart flushes and then uh, also using sleep aids for example melatonin would also help a person to avoid those waking up moments in the middle of the night with a subsequent flushing Jez, as we end, I want to just go back to your lovely mission statement. And I know this is something you feel very passionate about. Something that strikes me when I read all the comments on social media from women who've had hysterectomies, that they feel very lonely and that they often feel very disempowered in their engagement with the medical profession around this. I know this is something you feel very passionate about. What's your advice in that case? I would say to people, if they are feeling disempowered, is to go out there and find themselves somebody who who will listen. I, I think there are more doctors out there these days who are interested in this work than there was ever before. It is certainly something, a trend that is growing. And, and I think you can, if you find yourself a, a doctor, maybe even a functional medicine doctor, you'll be off to a very good start. And certainly there's a lot of help out there. I don't think you should sit on your own at home and think that there's no help. And I don't think you should stop with just one doctor. If you didn't get the advice or the time that you felt that you needed, then it's it's time for a second opinion. Erica, thank you so much. For me, the takeaway from today is one, you don't have to suffer. B, it's important to look after your hormones. But three, don't try and do it yourself. Get an expert out there that is supportive and caring and knowledgeable about these things. So thank you for all of that. It was really a joy to speak to you. My thanks also to Nicola Bruns, as always, for producing this podcast. And most importantly, thank you to you for tuning in. If you want to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you. Email me on hysterectomypodcast at gmail.com. I'm Alani Favurt. Until next time, stay strong and stay brave. <laughs>